one of the things that will happen often in my house is one of my kids will come up, and a lot of times it's my daughter. Now, my daughter, I love to think of my daughter as the innocent little girl that I've always known her to be, but the older she gets, the less and less I'm convinced that she's really innocent. And now I know about the doctrine of total depravity, and I know that she's a sinner, and I know that she needs Jesus as her Savior, but she is my only daughter. But so many times, she'll come up to me with this phrase. She'll say, Daddy, I I don't know what happened, but... And then she'll tell me about something that went terribly wrong. I don't know what happened, but Luke is crying, and he's holding his head. Okay. So we go upstairs, and Luke is, yeah, crying and holding his head, and we ask my sweet little innocent daughter, Annie, Annie, well, why is he crying and holding his head? Well, I may have, and then the next word is always there, accidentally, right? I may have accidentally hit him in the head with my Barbie Corvette. Okay, so Annie, describe the accident. Well, we were playing ninjas, and the Corvette was my weapon, and he was the bad guy, and so I swung and I hit him in the head. So it wasn't really an accident at all, was it, Annie? No. So he's crying and holding his head because you hit him over the head with a Barbie Corvette. Yes. Okay. We've gotten to the bottom of it now, right? And she's not the only one. My, my old, other ones will do it too. The 10-year-old will come up. I don't know what happened, but the twins are screaming upstairs. Why are they screaming? Well, because they were playing with something that I wanted and I took it from them. Okay. Well, now we know what happened, right, Josh? Now we know what's at the bottom of their anger. See, sin is deadly and dangerous, and and the battle against it has to start at that first glimpse of temptation. Because what I'm dealing with here with both my daughter and my son is is sin. And there was a moment in time when they were first tempted to do what led to the pain that they inflicted on their siblings. And the battle began there, and for them, they needed to stop the battle there. They needed to short-circuit the process of sin at that moment and put things to an end before it even got to the point where they had to come downstairs and say, Dad, I I don't know what happened, but. Instead, as they gave in, they were left needing to rationalize. They were left needing to excuse their sin. They were left needing to redefine their actions and say, well, it's not really sinful because I don't really know what happened. The car just jumped out of my hands and smacked him across the face. Dad, I I have no idea. See, the battle for sin is something that's real for all of us. And that's what James is talking about in the text that we're going to read together tonight and look at together. Uh, Pick up in verse 13. Last week, we looked at trials, tribulations, suffering, and how God brings those into our lives to, to test our faith, to produce steadfastness in our lives. And that there's a benefit to us there. But now he turns, James does, to this subject of temptation. He says in verse 13, Let no one, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what James is addressing here is the subject of temptation, something that all of us, no doubt in this room, are familiar with. Different things tempt different people, but the reality is we all know that feeling of craving, of longing of feeling like we are being lured, or as James says, enticed by something. 
thinking to ourselves, you know what, I have to have that, otherwise I'm not going to be able to live another minute, live another second, otherwise I'm not going to be happy, otherwise I'm not going to be fulfilled, otherwise I won't be satisfied with life, and so I need this. And sometimes we like to flirt with temptation. Sometimes we identify temptation for what it is off the bat, and we say, well, this isn't good, but we then play this game that we like to do of saying, well, how, how far can I go in pursuing this temptation before I've gone too far? How far can I go in, in pursuing this, this desire, this longing that I have, this lust that I have, before it crosses that line and it becomes sin? How close can I get to sin without actually doing something wrong? And we entertain the temptation and we, we flirt with that temptation. And I'll, I'll cite the verse more specifically in a little bit here, but it's the writer of Proverbs when he talks to his son and he's telling his son about the adulterous woman. And he says, don't go near her house even. That needs to be our approach with temptation because here's the reality. The deadly deceit of temptation lies in its ability to convince you that the pleasures that it offers are better than the good gifts of God. Temptation will come at you and it's going to try to deceive you into thinking that what it's offering you is better than what God offers you. And if we buy into that lie, as James says in this text, it has, it has deadly consequences for us. Look back at verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted or she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. In other words, don't blame God for this. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself, he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desire. Right away, James makes something abundantly clear for us. He says, God may try you, God may test you, but God will never tempt you. God is never the author of the things that lure you and entice you and appeal to your fleshly lusts and cravings. Though temptation can often and, and does often accompany those trials and tests that God brings into our lives, James is saying that we can't look at that temptation and point the finger at God and say, well, God, this is your fault. In fact, it's interesting in the, the text here, even though the ESV says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. The word there for tempted is the same word for trial. And so many think that James is connecting to the preceding thought by saying this. He's saying, let no one say when he is being tried. When you're going through a trial, when you're going through a time of, of pain and sorrow in your life, and that's when a lot of times those temptations rear their ugly heads. Because again, sin offers us a temporal escape. It offers us a doling of the senses. It offers us a, a way out not to have to deal with reality. James is saying, when you're in the midst of trial, don't think to yourself, you know what, I'm being tempted by God. See, the error that James was correcting was that thought that some of the trials were God's way of trying them by tempting them towards evil. And James is saying that's, that's not what he's doing. Just like in our trials, though, like we talked about last time, when we're feeling tempted, we often like to ask the why questions, don't we? Why is this so hard for me? Why does this happen every single day? Why am I always struggling with this temptation? Why does it seem like this temptation always wins out over me? Why is this longing so big? Why is this, this lust so strong? Why? Why doesn't this person struggle with this? Why can't I be like that person over there who doesn't battle with this sin? And in our quest to answer those questions, we can be tempted to think that it's God's fault. God, if you hadn't put me in this trial, I wouldn't be tempted this way. Or God, if you hadn't made me the way that you made me, I wouldn't be tempted by these things. 
But that's what we call rationalization, right? It's like my son and my daughter coming to me and saying, I don't know what happened, but... See, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to sin, any attempt to justify what we know is wrong based on an appeal to our, our circumstances or our context, unique or not, it's, it's just, it's not okay. It's not right. And that's what James is telling us. Point number one tonight is this, reject rationalizing sin. Reject rationalizing sin. You know, sometimes my kids come to me. Other times it's, it's uh, we catch them in the act and the ration, rationalization still kicks in, right? Like I'll watch my son hit my, my daughter and I'll be like, don't hit your sister. But she did, right? And the rationalization kicks in. It's like, well, you, no, 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 you don't understand. This, this sin that, that I committed, it's, it's really okay because of what she did to me. Or I'll tell him, you know what? Don't tell lies. Well, but I wasn't really trying to lie. I was just... Stop rationalizing it. You were trying to lie. You know the first person to rationalize their sin? Anybody? Adam, right? Adam. Adam's in the garden. God comes walking in the garden after Adam and Eve ate the, the fruit of the forbidden tree. And God calls out to them and he says, you know, where are you? And he says, well, we hid from you and we knew that we were naked. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? And, and Adam blame shifts right away, doesn't he? He goes, well, it was not my fault, God. It was the woman that you gave me. He says, she's the one who did it. She grabbed the fruit from the tree and gave it to me. Now, Adam's ignoring the fact that he was supposed to be the leader in that instance and failed miserably in that regard as Eve was reaching out to take the fruit. But you know what? We're not going to talk about that. But Adam was trying to rationalize. He's like, look, it's, it's not my fault. My fault. You gave me this woman, and, and she provided the, the fruit for me, and so I, I, I took it. So really, God, I, I'm off the hook on this. And so often, that's what we do. When temptation arises, we, we begin to doubt God. We begin to give in to our sinful thoughts or behaviors because we believe that what sin is offering us is better than what God offers us. And it's just not true. Some examples of some temptations that you may struggle with during trials, stress gets high at school. You begin to have assignments due. The grades that are, are behind you are not very good and, and you've got finals coming up and you need to pull good grades on those to be able to maintain a scholarship or to be able to make sure that mom and dad are still happy or, or whatever that may be. And so stress mounts and so you begin to think about uh, your reading reports that you have to have due and, and that level of honesty begins to come into question as to whether or not you actually really did read the book or did you just put it in front of a fan and let the fan blow the pages by you and go, well, all the pages passed before my eyes so therefore I read 100% of the book. Or do you cheat on an assignment when that stress piles up and you're thinking, you know what, this, this giving in of this temptation to sin is okay because of the ends that are there, which is that I'll continue to be able to get good enough grades to stay at the school and clearly God wants me to stay at the school. Well, what if he doesn't? Or maybe you've got difficulty financially. You guys are entering into that independent life stage right now. Some of you are, you know, you, you aren't connected to mom and dad financially anymore at all, and, and you're working for your, your own living, and that's great, but sometimes, you know, financially, things can get pretty tight. Well, what's your recourse on that? Are you tempted to say, well, it's okay, I've got this credit card here, so let me go buy a bunch of stuff that I really can't afford and rack up a bunch of debt that I really have no way of paying back to try to soothe my, my fear of, of what's going on, my anxiety, or, or buy away my grief and my, my fear? Or maybe you've got problems with a boyfriend or girlfriend. And you start thinking to yourself, 
maybe a relationship with somebody else is going to be better than the relationship that I'm in. And so you start entertaining thoughts of going to pursue a relationship with another person. Maybe you cheat on that person. Or maybe your problems with your boyfriend and girlfriend are such that you feel like, man, nobody gets how much we love each other. And I understand that it's wrong to have sex before marriage, but you guys don't understand. You don't know how much we care about each other, how much we love each other, and the heat ratchets up in your relationship and you give in to that temptation, but you think to yourself, well, it's okay because we love each other. You're rationalizing. Or maybe it's your depression. And I, guys, I get that depression is real and, and there needs to be attention given to that. And people who struggle with depression, about a depression, you know, need help. And the hope is there that, that there's hope for them in Christ and in a right relationship with God. But so many, so many times in depression, we turn to things like drugs and alcohol to dull the senses so we don't have to think about what's driving that depression. And we rationalize by thinking to ourselves, I, I just don't want to have to deal with reality right now, so I'm just going to give myself over to whatever. Or maybe it's just stress in general, outbursts of anger. And you rationalize away your, your, your anger and your short fuse by saying, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I blew up at you the other day, I'm just really stressed right now. See, it's so easy for us to, to rationalize. It's so easy for us to take what is clearly sin and to make it like, that's ah, no big deal. It's not wrong because of my circumstances, because of what I'm going through. And James is saying, look, even if you're going through trials, don't sit there and use trials as an excuse to give in to sin. God is not bringing trials in your life to open the door to temptation, to give you a green light to go after sin. He makes it abundantly clear. He says, God is not tempted by evil and God tempts no one. In other words, James says, God and temptation have nothing to do with each other in any way, shape, or form. God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And so then the question begs itself, right? Then where does temptation come from? And James answers that question for us. He says, temptation comes from within you. He says, each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desire. By their own desire. See, God's not to blame for your temptation and your sin in your life. You are. It's time to look inward when you see sin running rampant in your life and uncontrolled in your life or when you sin and you feel conviction. You need to look at your own heart and say, okay, the, the sin and the temptation that I'm battling comes from within, not from God. It comes from what I've been storing up inside of me. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. In 19 through 20, he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. And so if you've got a particular sin that just owns you, it's not God's fault. It's not somebody else's fault. That comes down to what's within you. It comes down to needing to, to take ownership of that and go to war against the sins that want to own you. A great resource in that that I want to encourage you to take advantage of is, is to seek out biblical counseling from people. We've got eight pastors on staff here who do counseling free. Come talk to us. Come meet with us. Say, look, I, this is a temptation that I feel like I can't shake. Can you help me wrestle through what's going on right now? Can you help me in this battle? We would love nothing more than to be able to do that with you. Ladies, we've got awesome Number one, you've got female leaders throughout this room who would love to meet with you, who are gifted and able to counsel you from the scriptures. We've also got female counselors at the church that would love to meet with you. 
But see, the problem is, is not external. It's an internal incubation of sin. That, or an incubation of temptation. That's what produces the sin. That's what James says in, in 15 and 16. Look at verse 15. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. The language is graphic here. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. What James is laying out for us here is the process of sin. Sin involves a process. Every time, sin is a premeditated act of rebellion against God. Every time. There is a process involved. It's far less impulsive than we give it credit for. Let me give you an example. Maybe you struggle with or have struggled with in the past alcohol. And the temptation to go out and drink arises. And you start thinking about the drink. And that, that's that initial point of temptation that arises in your mind. And then after that, you start thinking about where you can go and get a drink. And then after that, you start minimizing the consequences of just one more time with alcohol. And then after that, before you know it, you've got your keys and you've gotten in the car. And you're driving to the place where you know you can gain access to the alcohol. And then you're walking into the store and you're picking it up off the shelf and you're physically carrying it to the register, and you put the bottle up on the the cash register counter, and you listen to them scan it, and you hear the beep of the temptation just going across the, the register there, and then they set the bottle back down. And then you find your hand reaching back, and you grab your wallet out, and you pull out your card, or you pull out the cash, and, and you pay for that alcohol. And then you pick up that alcohol that you just bought, and you walk back out of the store, and you get back into the car, and hopefully you wait until at least you then drive all the way back to your house or to someone else's house or to a park or wherever it is that you want to go. You pull the bottle open, you open the bottle, and you bring it to your lips. Do you see the process of sin and how premeditated that is? It's not impulsive. Or how about anger? Maybe you're saying, but what about anger? Anger feels like it's something so impulsive. Okay, but let's slow that down for a minute. You're out on the road. Somebody cuts you off. A thought pops into your mind, man, that is not fair that I just got cut off. Followed by another thought, man, that was really dangerous for that person to do that. Followed by the next thought, who does that person think they are? Followed by the next thought, man, they need, justice needs to be done here. Followed by the next thought that says, I'm going to swerve around and cut them off followed by the action where your brain fires the synapses to cause your car to go into the lane next to you to speed up with the foot accelerating on the gas pedal to drive by that car and maybe to tell that person they're number one with a specific finger to go past them and then to swerve back in front and cut them off. Do you see how even the impulsiveness of road rage is still a process? And that's what James is saying here. He's saying, look, when sin conceives, it gives birth to death. Or when temptation conceives, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, It yields death. Sin involves a progression. And if you and I will agree to become relentless students of ourselves, to know ourselves through and through, we can stop that progression before it gets too far. It's point number two tonight. It's this, abort sin. Abort sin. James uses the language of conception and birth here with regards to sin And while we would always point at abortion and say abortion is wrong 
in every situation and context. I grab that word because I want the graphic nature of what we're talking about to resonate with you. We're not talking about aborting a life. We're talking about aborting sin. We're talking about aborting what kills. And I want you to abort the process. Let me ask you a question. If, if you saw a blind man and he had his cane out, but maybe he's freshly blind, right? So he doesn't really know how to work that thing. I've always wondered that. This is a sidebar, totally random. But like, apparently there's a school. Did you guys know this? There's a school where if you become blind later in life, you go to the school to learn how to do everything that blind people do to survive. That's amazing to me. They're brilliant to be able to figure that out. I would just trip all over myself. But if, if you saw a blind guy with a stick, and maybe he's brand new with the stick, and he's walking towards the street, and there's oncoming traffic, it's a busy street, would you stop him? Would you stop him? Yes. And my guess is your attempts to stop him would, would escalate. If at first you said, hey, stop, there's a street out there, and he didn't stop, because maybe he's blind and deaf. And then you raise your voice, stop, there's a street, there's, there's traffic, sir. And he, he still ignores you. At some point, you're going to go to him, and you are going to grab hold of him, and you are going to physically pull him back from the impending danger, right? Because you understand that there's danger there. Well, that's what we need to do with ourselves when it comes to temptation. As we give in to temptation, it's like we're walking closer and closer and closer to that oncoming traffic. And we need to be able to stop that process. We need to be able to stop moving towards sin, stop moving towards death. Because here's the reality. With temptation, you're being offered counterfeit joys, counterfeit satisfaction, counterfeit comfort that does not last, that does not endure. And so here's what I want to suggest to you, and that is that you know what your weaknesses are. Know what your vulnerabilities are. What are the sins that you struggle with? Be honest with yourself in that. Make a list of those, even if it's just for you. But I would encourage you, make a list of those for you and an accountability partner also. Know what your vulnerabilities are so you know what to watch out for. Because the temptation will come. You will hear the, 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 the voice in the head maybe say, the, the buzz this time is going to be better than the last one. The high is going to last longer than the last time, and the crash won't be as bad. You've survived before, you'll survive again. You know what, Blow, blowing up at that person, cut, cutting them off, cussing at them on the road, that's going to make you feel better about the injustice against you. Or you'll hear the temptation in your, in your mind, you know, from your, your, the, the sinfulness in your flesh. You know what, this is going to be the last time. Or you'll hear, you know what, we love each other, and that's really all that matters. Or you'll hear, you know what, this doesn't really hurt anyone. No one else knows about this. Or you'll hear, you know what, I'll stop tomorrow. You guys need to know those are lies. It's deceit from the enemy. It's not from God. It's, it's from the enemy. It's from your flesh. It's from all of the junk that you take in on a daily basis. And let me just tell you this. The less of the God's word that you are taking in, the less time in prayer that you are spending, and the more time in this world that you are giving yourself over, the, the, the battle for your, the, the sin in your life, the, the temptation is going to rage all the more. What you take in on a regular basis has a direct impact on what you are battling with. And so if you are taking in junk, then that's what's going to be marking your life. 
If you are entertained by sinful things, you are going to be prone to give in to sinful things. Guys, if you're spending time, ladies too, in front of the computer and pornography is just all you are taking in, that's going to impact you. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. These are the temptations that we're talking about. But listen to what he says here. Which wage war against your soul. Your lust, your temptations are out for your destruction. Not for your good. The lie that they want you to believe, the lie that your flesh wants you to believe, the lie that the enemy wants you to buy into is that what tempts you is good for you. It's not good for you. And that's what Peter's saying. He says, those things are waging war against your soul. And James is saying, the outcome of that, if you continually give yourself over to those things, is death. In some cases, merely physical death. And I use the word merely intentionally there. Because what's in view more here is not just dying once, but it's the second death. It's spending an eternity in hell under the full wrath of God being poured out for you. All because you wanted to play around with the trinkets of this world and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. There's an old story about how an Eskimo kills a wolf. Have you guys ever heard that? What the Eskimo will do during the wintertime is he will take a knife and he will coat it in, in some sort of animal fat, some sort of drippings from a meal that he's had, and then he'll allow that to freeze onto the blade of the knife. And he'll do that a few times so that it has a, a good thick layer of that fat on the blade. And then what he'll do is he'll take that knife and he'll go out into the snow and he'll take it and he'll bury the handle in the snow but leave the blade exposed. But the blade is, is covered in that, that, the drippings from the, the animals. Well, the wolf will come along and smell the, the fat on the blade from the animals. And the wolf will think he has a free meal. And the wolf will come up to the blade and begin to lick the, the cold blade, the frozen blade. And his desire will be fueled because as he licks more and more, he's getting more and more of that fat off the blade. But what he doesn't understand with every lick he takes, the, the metal is being exposed more and more. And before he realizes it, he's now slicing his tongue as he's licking this knife. But because he's so far gone and so consumed with this lust for food and for this, this meal, as he tastes the blood from his numb tongue, as, as the, the blood begins to, to go down into his gullet, he won't realize that it's his own blood that he's drinking and he will end up bleeding himself to death by licking the knife that the Eskimo has buried in the snow. Y'all, that's sin in your life. The fat on the blade is temptation. And I guarantee you, the enemy of this world is more than willing to allow you to lick away at the tiny bit of temptation that's wrapped around the blade of death that is concealed underneath. And for some of you, you are, have been licking at the blade of temptation for so long that you are so far gone into your sin that you are bleeding out right now. And you have no clue. And what's frightening is for some of you, you just don't care. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that there is a time in which God will turn people over to their sin. He will give them up in their lusts. I pray that none of you get to that moment. So what do you do? Be prepared by knowing your weaknesses. Know what your temptations are and guard yourself against them. Develop that discipline of identifying the lies of your sins. When you are feeling tempted, develop the discipline to say, what is so tempting about this? And if you will take what that is and you will really think about it and think about it biblically, you will come to be able to identify the lie that's there and to reject it and to flee from it instead. And then finally, cultivate a desire for God's good gifts. God's good gifts. Verse 17 James says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look at verse 17. That's where I want to focus. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It seems again like James has taken another right turn. We've been talking about temptation, and now we're talking about every good gift comes from above. But what James is doing is he's not changing subjects. He's showing us what the alternative is to giving in to temptation. He's contrasting God's good gifts, which are the real deal, with the counterfeit, which is what temptation offers you. See, God isn't tempting you with evil. He's blessing you with good, including the very desire that you have to fight sin in the first place. 2 Peter 1.3, we read, God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything. When we come to Christ for salvation, we are turning to God in full dependence and surrender. Your way, God, not mine. Agreeing with him that we need him and that he ultimately knows what is best for us. And that we want him more than anything else on this earth. That mindset that we have at the moment of salvation has to continue with us. You need to be constantly skeptical of yourself. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. The world says let your heart lead you. If you let your heart lead you, you will end up in hell. When temptation tells us we need something that God has said we don't, we must trust God and not our sinful appetites. That's point number three tonight is this. Choose God's gifts over sin. Choose God's gifts over sin. There's a couple of problems with this. Number one is the problem of delayed gratification. Delayed gratification, and that's something that we struggle with. Right? That's something that I struggle with too. I've got the iPhone XS Max or whatever, but they just released a new iPhone and I'm like, man, I've got this one for two years before I can get the new one? Oh my goodness, how am I going to wait that long? We want what we want and we want it now, right? Whether it's good for us or not. Well, so often we need to learn to be able to say no to ourselves. Say no to what we feel like we need, what we feel like we want, and be willing to say, I'm going to wait for the, the ultimate satisfaction, which is going to come from hearing God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But here's what we tend to do when we want immediate gratification, is we take our sin, and just like we started with tonight, we rationalize it. 
And we take the sin that's ours and we say, well, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not that, it's not really sin. And we rationalize it by twisting God's word even to make God's word say what it never was intending to say. You know what God's goal is for you this side of eternity? To be like Jesus. To be sinless. And to follow the teachings of Jesus. And yes, Jesus was about grace. And yes, Jesus was about mercy. But Jesus also went into the temple. You remember when the Pharisees were in there and the, the, the money changers? People who were ripping other people off. And what did Jesus go in there and do? He flipped their tables over, spilled the money all over the floor, and he made a cord of whips and he drove out the money changers and the animals in front of him. You guys remember that? Or the woman that was caught in adultery, who's brought to him. And yes, he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, right? But then when everybody leaves, what did Jesus look at the woman and say to her? Oh, look, nobody's here. Well, go on and live the lifestyle you've always been living because you're fine in that lifestyle. What does Jesus say to her? Go and sin no more. See, we need to begin to understand that our temptation is, this life is not about us being happy, okay? And that's what sin and temptation will tell you. That it's about you being happy, you being satisfied, you being who you want to be. And I'm saying, no, that's, that's not what this life is about. If you are a Christian, this life is about you being who God wants you to be. And that sometimes is, is super hard to say no to myself, to say no to my desires, to say no to my relationships, to say no to my sins, and to say yes to following God. But we have to believe that God's calling us to something that is supremely better than sin, which is what James is saying. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father above. We believe that sin will provide relief from the pain and sorrow and the chaos, fulfillment. But so often that sin that we're unwilling to let go of that sin that we want to say, you know what, God accepts me for this sin regardless of me having this sin. What that's called is that's called an idol. And God is saying, I want all of you. And you're saying, you can have all of me except for this. I'm not willing to give you this. And God is saying, no, I want all of you. But we believe this idol that we're holding on to is going to satisfy. But listen to what the writer of Proverbs says, King Solomon, about specifically about sexual sin, but he says this in Proverbs chapter five. You could say this about any sin, but he says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. He says, listen to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. But here it is. He says, for the lips of a forbidden woman, an adulteress, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. You hear the language of temptation here. But he says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, which was a poison. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. A few verses later, same chapter, verse 7, he says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take the fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. 
at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Chapter five is such a tragic picture because King Solomon is saying, I've, I've seen those who do this. They give themselves over to the sin that they want. This idol that God says, I want all of you. And you're saying, you can have all of me, but you can't have this. And they hold on to that with a white knuckled grip. And at the end of their life, they come to realize that that idol that they were holding on to doesn't do them any good where it really matters. And at the end of their life, they're looking at their life going, how I've wasted my life. I ignored the warnings, I ignored the pleadings, I ignored the reproof, I ignored all of it, and I held on to this idol when I knew that there was something better that God was going to give me. And now where am I? He says, at the brink of utter ruin. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. See, when the fleeting pleasures of sin evaporates, you're left in the same trial that you've always been in, but now carrying the, same, the shame and guilt of having yielded again to that temptation. And so I want to encourage you, choose God's way, even if it means that you're in a valley for a little bit longer. Choose God's way, even if it means that it's denying yourself, because he has so much goodness for you that is so much better than giving in to everything that you want, that you desire. And turn to the church. Turn to this group. Turn to your leaders. If you have parents that care about you, love you, turn to your parents. Turn to counselors. Turn to scripture. Turn to prayer. All of these are resources for you in the midst of trials when temptation arises. What did King David say in Psalm 119? How can a young man keep his way pure? He said, by keeping it according to what? Your word. Later on in the same chapter, he says, I've treasured up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You want to win the battle and start having victory over sin in your life? You have to be in God's word. You have to be taking it in. You have to be meditating on it. You have to be memorizing God's word as well. And trusting that what he has for you is so much better than what this world and this temptations and sin is offering you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If someone you knew, considered to be a, a friend, lied to you continually, eventually you're going to stop trusting them, yes? Eventually you're going to question every one of their promises, you're going to doubt every claim that they make. And it doesn't matter how much they plead with you and try to, to twist your arm. You're not going to give in to their manipulative methods because you know them to be a liar. Y'all, that's sin in your life. James wants you to be on guard against temptation because it is, it's a liar. It's deceitful. Sin is destructive. And the greatest lie that we face is the lie that we're going to defeat sin tomorrow. We'll resist that temptation the next time. We still have time to overcome this. I want to encourage you, don't buy into that. 
Go to war against your flesh. Your flesh is going to war against you. Don't be defensive. Be proactive. Go after your sin and put it to death. Like John Owen used to say, the the great Puritan writer, mortify your sin. Put it to death. And believe God. Believe that all he has provided for you is all that you need. And believe that the things that he has are so much better than anything this world has to offer you. It may mean delayed gratification, but it's going to be so, so worth it in the end. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to live this kind of life as those that want to follow you, as those that want to take up our cross and and follow after you and and to do that with integrity and to do that well. God, help us to to say, okay, I'm I'm all in. It's, It's you. It's not me and my sin that I'm bringing with me into this relationship. God, it's you and you alone. Lord, you will not share our affections. You are a jealous God, it says in scripture. You want us fully devoted to you. And we don't get to pick and choose, God, what we like and what we don't like about what you've called us to do in scripture. It's an all or nothing proposition. And yes, when we sin, grace is there to forgive. But that should never be our default. And it's such a dangerous mindset to have to say, well, let me continue to sin that grace may abound. Lord, I pray for these students. I pray that the temptations that they struggle with, that they face in life would be abundantly clear to them, that they would be able to identify where they're tempted so that they can be able to begin to formulate a a game plan, an attack plan to go after those spots of temptation in their life. And Lord, I pray that you'd give them great victory over sin in their life, that they would use one another for accountability, for encouragement, for prayer. Lord, that they would see the deadliness of sin, the deceitfulness of temptation, and be able to identify it as what it is and run from it. God, I pray for our small group time now that it would be profitable, beneficial, good, challenging. Lord, that relationships will continue to be formed and that some might even be formed that would end up being good to, to serve as accountability or just to spur one another on towards Christ-likeness. Lord, may you be pleased with the rest of our time tonight. In Christ's name, amen.